Hello and welcome to series three of the Catalyst podcast. My name is Ken Valady, partner and co-founder at Progressive. This latest series accompanies the new book that I've co-written with Eamon Carey called The Startup Lexicon, which is a guide to the words, phrases, jargon and terminology used in the startup and tech world. In each episode, Eamon and I will discuss two to three key words that are crucial to the understanding of the world of startups. Some of these words you may know, some you may not know, and maybe some, after listening to our discussion, you will see in a different light. All in all, though, our aim is to help demystify the everyday language of startups. And before I forget, details on where you can actually purchase a startup lexicon in both physical and digital format can be found in the episode notes for today's recording. Now on with the show. Afternoon, Eamon. How are you? How was your trip last week? It was really nice. It was good to go back to Riga. It was good to meet up with people. It was a sellout conference, uh, 2,000 people at the venue. And you know, I think that's just a good size to be able to bump into a whole bunch of people serendipitously as you're moving around without it being too big, but also not so small that you know, you're talking to the same people over and over again. So it was really, really good fun and, and full credit to the organizers of, of Tech Chill and to the folks who organize kind of side events and parties. It was a really, really good re-entry to that part of the world. Superb. So in today's episode, Eamon, we want to focus on a few words within E to G of the lexicon book. Within this window, the book covers many words, including entrepreneur and residence, equity kicker, evergreen, fire sale, fungible tokens, gas, growth hacking, to name but a few. But in today's episode, Eamon and I will focus on earnout clause, elevator pitch and founder market fit. So on to the first one, earnout clause. Now, I, I've not personally gone through one of these. I know lots of people who have, and I, I believe you have as well, Eamon, um, experienced one of these for yourself. But to, to kick off with, um, in essence, an earnout clause is, is a pretty common feature of a merger and acquisition deal, and it's all to do with the percentage of an agreed sale price being deferred until a later date and then being released based on specific durations of time or other KPIs. It's usually included to create the incentive for founders and, and their close teams of the company being acquired to remain at the inquired company for a sufficient period of time to ensure full and successful handover and transition. Now, I know people, as I say, have gone through a few of these with mixed experiences. What was your experience of one? I'd say mixed is uh, is one word to describe it. The earnout is one of those words that you see in an M&A transaction document or you hear people talking about, but it's only when you go through the process or the experience of one that you really understand exactly what it means. And so for anyone who's listening, if you read an article about a company being acquired, you know, the article will say company X was acquired by company Y for a consideration of, let's say, 10 million pounds, right, for the the sake of, of nice, even numbers. And you might look at it and go, oh, my God, that's brilliant. You know, the founders are all millionaires and everyone is happy. Mm. The reality is, as with many of these things, the devil is in the detail. And so what normally happens in those deals is the total cost of the acquisition will be 10 million pounds. But maybe a million pounds of that will be paid in cash up front. And generally, as uh, as you've listened to before, when we talked about kind of common stock and some of the challenges that come with having different classes of, of shares in your company, usually the people who own preferred stock, so investors in a company, get paid out first. So that first million pounds normally goes directly to the investors in your company if you've raised money before. And then the remainder, 9 million, 8 million, whatever the number is, is structured as what they call an earnout over a three or, or four year period. 
And the earnout means that you only get that money based on hitting certain milestones. So if you're a business that's been acquired, it might say, hey, you know, your earnout means that you'll get an additional, you know, one million at the end of year one if you maintain a certain amount of revenue or if you exceed a certain growth target. You get another amount at the end of year two for another milestone, another milestone, and another milestone. The challenge with this, obviously, is it's very easy for companies to set the milestones on the basis of the growth that you've had to date. It's also then very easy for the acquiring company to go, hey, we actually need some of your resources to put towards this other project. Or, oh, we had previously said we were going to commit this portion of the marketing budget to you know, an activity that you're involved in that's going to go towards your KPIs, but actually now we need to run a big conference or hire some band to play at an event that we're running. And so one of the challenges with an earnout is that they can be structured in a way that looks like it might be easy for you to hit the full target, but it's also very easy for the goalposts to move for founders and for companies and people who've been acquired after the fact. So it's just one of those things to kind of look out for that, again, you get the headline terms of of an acquisition and you think, great, we're going to be acquired for X amount of money. But just be conscious that sometimes these earnouts, you can end up earning, you know, 0% of your earnout target, you can end up earning 20%, 30%. And in, frankly, not all cases, you end up earning 100% of it. But it's very easy for the acquiring company to move the goalposts once the, you know, initial cash payment is, is delivered. So just to switch the Latin phrase on its head, it's caveat venditor, right? So let the seller beware. This is just something that, that you need to look at. And when, if and when you're negotiating an acquisition to kind of think about what does that cash component look like? How big of a consideration should it be? And how much kind of liquidity or how much cash does that give you as the founders, your investors and your team members up front so that everyone is sufficiently motivated to work ahead and, and stick around for the earnout? And obviously for the acquiring companies you mentioned, it's a way to lock people in because what you don't want to do is buy some company and then the kind of intellectual capital of that company in the form of its team members to go, woohoo, like I'm rich, I'm off and uh, and never come back. You obviously want them to stick around and, and do the kind of post-acquisition integration. But as I say, there's always some devil in those details. Absolutely. And I think from the, the experiences I've encountered through talking to other people who've gone through the process, the devil is in the detail. And it's actually some of the, the should we say some of the um, hindsight that's come forward from those conversations I've had is the founders saying they'd wish they'd looked into the earnout details and, and, and given it a bit more time. I think they got caught up a little bit with, we're going to get bought, this is going to happen, this is fantastic, it's what I've been aiming for. And assuming that, that the two, three, four year journey they've got to go on is going to be fine. And then when they look into the detail later on when it's getting tough, or dare you say the resources are being moved, which hinders their chances of getting their final money or their paycheck as such, they just wish they'd have seen this coming, but they're stuck to a certain extent. The challenge is always the bit that I never fully understood until we we sold a company was that when you sell a company, you go from being an entrepreneur or a founder and, and usually, you know, the CEO or CTO or something else of, of that company. So you, you stop being a founder and you start being an employee the next day. And that's one of the challenges, you know, that that you're no longer as in control of your own destiny. And yet, unless you're one of those kind of rare acquisitions like you know, Snap buying Zenly or or what was previously the case with, with uh, Facebook buying WhatsApp and Instagram, they were allowed to operate relatively independently until the kind of mothership subsumed them recently. So it's just one of those things to look out for that people mentally start spending all of the money that they think they're going to make in this acquisition and don't think about the fact that, oh, actually, I'm, I'm maybe going to get 10% of it up front and then I have to stick around sufficiently long to make sure that I get the rest. 
And I think it's a key point as well because your role changes as the founder when you go into that earnout. Yeah. Part of the whole experience, your your role changes. You are an employee to a certain extent, and even though. In most cases, you're used to investors being around the table and and looking over your shoulder and making sure you hit the certain milestones you need to hit to grow. This is the next level where you've now got another company which owns your company technically looking over your shoulder and and seeing whether you hit the numbers which they're going to have to pay for if you do, which is a completely different scenario. And I would argue mentally, mindset-wise, as you say, could be a, a big switch for some people, quite a big step for people to take. Yeah, and it's a tough thing to do. And also, you've got to be careful that, you know, normally if you have investors, you know, if you're still the founder of a company, you know, your investors will work with you to try and make the company more successful. It's very rare that they do the the, the opposite. If you're an employee or if you're running a division in a much larger competition or a much larger company and you don't hit your numbers, then you're you're potentially going to get fired, right? And if you get fired, you can't make your earnout, right? So the deck can end up being at least somewhat stacked against you if you're not careful with the exact terms in an earnout. Absolutely. So th- there you have it, earnout clause, one of many words that I think we, we could do many episodes on and, and yes. definitely worth reading about if you're a founder and you're going to get near the stage of being acquired and the earnout clause comes out in in a discussion, you definitely need to put some time in to understand uh, the detail behind it because it's going to have a huge impact on on how you feel and how you work and everything that goes with it for the next two, three, four, five years. Yeah. So next word we're moving on to is elevator pitch, which is, I would say, again, goes in my list of the, the top four or five words I started to hear on a frequent basis when I first jumped the corporate ship. And elevator pitch in itself is actually being able to do a very brief presentation which describes what you do, the service you offer, the product you have in a very short period of time. And I believe the elevator pitch term comes from the fact of can you present what you stand for in the time it takes to go up two or three floors in the elevator so 30 seconds so a crucial skill to have and in the lexicon book itself daniel glazer who from is from wilson sonsini gives a really 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 i'd say concise overview of the importance of the elevator pitch he describes how it is the initial flirtation and courtship between a company and an investor. And it's the first and potentially the most crucial step in the fundraising journey. And he was saying from an elevator pitch, you then get the the license to send an email. From the email, your deck may be opened. Things go on from there and it eventually culminates in money, investors' money going into the startup's bank. So a really clear way describing where you want to get to sometimes goes all the way back. Success in getting to where you need to goes all the way back to a an elevator pitch that you had the skill to perform successfully in a certain time. What's your experiences of elevator pitches, Eamon? Ones you've done or ones you've experienced? Any kind of key learnings? Less is more. I think what founders don't always understand is that, you know, an elevator pitch, you know, that the length of that elevator journey might be 15 seconds, right? And the, mm. the best example of this that I've heard is actually someone I suspect both of us know, Louise Doherty, who is the, the founder of PlanSnap. Mm. When she was doing the Techstars program with me in New York in 2016, she went to an event at Soho House in New York and she went in and, you know, got in the elevator on the ground floor, pushed the button for the, I think, fifth floor. And as the doors were closing, Richard Branson got into the elevator with her on his own, no, you know, minders or entourage or anything else. And so she had that, you know, 20 seconds or whatever amount of time it took for the the elevator to go up those floors to get his attention. You know, she managed to do it. But I think that's the opportunity that founders will sometimes find themselves in at a conference, at an event, um, you know, in, in various different places where you get this window of opportunity to just 
give enough information about your business to get the other person excited, right? And and that's the key here. An elevator pitch is really a, a kind of delivery mechanism, right? The goal of your elevator pitch should be to get a meeting. It shouldn't be to give me the full five-minute pitch. You should get me excited enough that I go, hey, here's a link to my Calendly. Here's my email. You know, let's book a slot right now for you to kind of give me the the longer version of the pitch. because the, And then the goal of that meeting is to get another meeting, right? Like your goal as a founder should be to constantly get more meetings because eventually if you go through three or four meetings with me and, and with my partners at Terra, the next meeting will be our investment committee meeting. The next meeting we have after that will be your first board meeting and hopefully, you know, right the way through to the, the meeting that we have for, for breakfast before you ring the bell at the, you know, NASDAQ or, or New York Stock Exchange. But to do that, you have to be able to deliver information in a concise and exciting way. And the best way that I can kind of think about this for founders is if people are movie fans and you go to the cinema or if you watch any of these kind of trailer compilations on YouTube, like the, the movie teaser trailers are the best example of an elevator pitch I've ever seen. And, and you used to get them before the the most recent three Star Wars movies came out where, the, where it would be 30 seconds. It might just be someone breathing and then a voice or the sound of the Millennium Falcon going by. And you were just like, oh, take my money, right? I want to book the seats right now. I want, you know, my own row at IMAX to, to see this. And that should be the feeling that investors get when they hear your elevator pitch. Like in five minutes, should you should be able to, or sorry, in 15 seconds, you should be able to say, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. Here's why you should care. Here's something that's really interesting about our traction, our product, our tech, you know, something unique about us against our competition, et cetera. And that's enough to make me as an investor go, okay, great, I want to know more. And that was one of the interesting things of being back at the Tech Chill event was that, you know, you go from scheduling kind of meetings on Zoom to having these kind of serendipitous elevator pitch moments. And, you know, it was a real, you could tell the companies that had practiced and had written down their elevator pitch and had kind of honed it over, you know, several uh, iterations and, and several practice sessions because they were the ones that were in a minute or two as I was walking from one meeting to the other or as I was kind of waiting in a queue to get a cup of coffee that were able to come up and say enough for me to go, okay, let's book a slot to have a chat versus the ones who kind of rambled, right? Like, and, and that's the, the challenge is that, again, if you've got 30 seconds in an elevator when I'm going, you know, to the fifth floor in Soho House, if your pitch lasts three minutes, by the time that happens, I'm going to be at a table with my friends and I don't want to listen anymore. So like, you've got to learn how to be really, really short and uh, and focused to nail it. And don't worry, you know, if, if someone is excited enough, they'll skip their next meeting and talk to you, right? Like, but uh, the goal should be, get me interested enough to book a meeting, book a call, or to say, okay, I'm 20 minutes early for the person I'm meeting, yeah. like, let's sit down now and have a chat. But you have to be able to get me someone excited in 10, 15, 20 seconds. And the key thing there is someone excited isn't expecting to be pitched to usually when they get an elevator pitch. So yeah. it's not like a demo day or there's a pitch session where someone's sitting there as a judge or, or an investor. This is someone going about their business, be it Richard Branson or someone else walks into an elevator or anywhere where they bump into someone, a startup. And it's that startup trying to, to get their attention, to get them intrigued, but also to be very, very precise and concise and everything, but not at the same time annoy the person they're pitching to. Because at the end of the day, that person is not expecting to be jumped upon yeah. with a pitch. They may be sometimes, but you don't always want it. So you've got to... You've got to keep it, I would say, short and to the point because I think that's the best way of getting someone intrigued and interested enough to come back to you. But at the same time, you don't want to annoy that person as well. 
an extra minute going over could actually annoy the person. And that extra detail, all that's done is actually make them more frustrated and they're, yep. they're not going to come back to you then. And I think that's the, the key thing for me. And another word we touch upon in the book is pitch, the pitch itself. And I actually write a short story behind that. And I've, I've got loads of experience of, I would argue, startups who just don't keep things simple, short and sweet and simple. There is a danger. It's a bit like the, the is it the scorpion and the frog story, yep. you know, it's in someone's nature to to carry on and they get the feeling that they've got time to go into something else into something else and by the end of it you've just ended up disengaging with everyone no one really wants to hear what you you've got anything to say and actually people are glad for you to to leave the room or the elevator so being precise and to the point and only giving a little one percent of what you can do is a skill in itself and is isn't i don't think a natural thing that comes to a lot of founders because of the opportunity that they see in front of them yeah, like, you know, be the song that you wish was one minute longer, right? Like the Ramones or whoever else used to write these songs are like two minutes long and it's just like the perfect length. And you can, oh, I could, you know, I could do one more verse and, and one more chorus. You know, don't be dream theater, right? And do a kind of 12 minute <laughs> version of it. Like, I think. A prog rock. Exactly. I think it's important to learn how to be concise. And that's why I say to people, like, write down your elevator pitch and time it. And if it goes over 30 seconds, it's too long, right? You need to be able to kind of say the most interesting thing about your. And it doesn't have to be chapter and verse. Give me something about traction. Give me something about your background. You know, DK from 42 Maru, who did uh, Techstars with me in 2018 in London, you know, the start of his pitch was, I beat Google, right? And it's like, okay, my ears yeah. prick up and go, what, what does that mean? Well, I built the, one of the only search engines in the world that beat them out for market share. Okay, I don't care what your business is. I, I want to have a conversation with you. You know, don't bury the fact that you've cured cancer in the tenth paragraph. Like, get the most interesting info to me, uh, ASAP, and then I'll want to have a meeting with you to learn more. And I remember one of the first startups I met a guy called Tom from a really super startup called Fermissimo. They were on all about form completion online, and Tom was a fantastic, still is a fantastic presenter, pitcher, and. He almost had a portfolio of pitches in his back pocket. So if he had 30 seconds, one minute, two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, he could nail it. Not only nail it with the right content, but actually keep to the time as well. So, And everyone on your, this is the one really important thing here as well, is that like everyone on your team should know the pitch, right? Because it's not always going to be you that's in an elevator with, you know, Richard Branson or Emma Watson mm. or, you know, whoever it is that you want to invest in your company. It might be your CTO. It might be your junior marketing person but like everyone should be able to explain what the company does concisely and again that's where having it kind of written down having it as almost like a, a you know part of your onboarding process it's it's really critical because as i say you never know excellent so now on to the final word which is founder market fit and this is a phrase used by some investors to talk about the experience a founder has in the sector in which they're doing business and some people describe it as the match between the founder and their experience and the problem that they're going after. So it's an investor will look for someone or will be more interested, should we say, in someone who's actually got experience in the problem they're trying to solve in the business they're building. What's your view as an investor now, Eamon, and part of the investor side of things? Is that a crucial ingredient, having that founder market fit, or is it nice to have? I think it depends, and I'm going to give one of those irritating VC answers and say mm -hmm. it depends. But I think if we think back to the kind of elevator mm -hmm. pitch, you know, if you're building, I'll give you an example, a company called Legal Nodes, who I invested in a, a while back, you know, the founding team are all lawyers and they know the pain point that they're solving for. And they know lots of other lawyers and they know lawyers in other markets and, you know, all of these kind of different challenges that they're facing. 
And so their founder market fit is really strong, right? Their lawyers building a product that other lawyers can use to increase the amount of business that they get, but also a product that companies can use to simplify some of the legal processes that they have to go through. Now, you know, Margot and, and Nestor and Max, when I met them first, I've known them for a while. The fact that they were lawyers was what made this particularly interesting. If I'd been pitched the same business by two or three people who were like, hey, look, I read a you know, Harvard Business School article that said that legal tech was growing 20% year over mm. year, you know, that maybe that founder market fit isn't quite in the in the same place. And again, if you go back to that idea of the elevator pitch, if someone comes in and goes, hey, I worked on, so Mike from Lingvist, for example, where I'm on the board, you know, mm. Mike was part of the Higgs boson team at, at CERN, nuclear physics PhD, extremely smart guy working with kind of algorithms and mathematics for most of his, all of his professional life. And so when he came in and said, hey, I've built an algorithm that makes language learning 10 times faster. By the way, I, you know, was part of the Higgs team at CERN. Right there, your fender market fit is is pretty strong versus someone coming in going, oh, you know, I read an article that said machine learning was cool, and so I've decided to apply that to education. So it is a a useful and occasionally lazy shorthand that that investors will use to kind of go, does this person understand the market they're going after? Is there a kind of itch that they felt themselves that they're scratching? And even just at a very basic level, like is there an edge that they have because of their network. And, and we see this a lot in kind of health tech, in in legal tech, and many, many other sectors where someone can come in and say, hey, you know, I have been a clinician for 10 years. I've seen this problem up front and or up close and personal. I brought in my friend, we're building, you know, an algorithm to help radiologists with, uh, you know, triaging MRI scans. And my go to market is I'm a member of the Society of Radiologists that has 500 members, and I can go in and sell to each of them individually, you know, Again, that's very strong founder market fit versus someone going, I have a hypothesis that computer vision might be useful in, in radiology. You try to use it in very early stage conversations as a as a kind of proxy for go-to-market, a proxy for you know market sizing, market knowledge, etc. Now, with that said, the you know, the guys who started Uber weren't taxi drivers before they before they started it. So it's it's not always the the case that you have to have kind of a direct correlation between your career or experience previously and and the company that you start but even in the case where you don't i think you that your founder market fit manifests by you being obsessed by that industry or, or knowing every company that started and tried and failed in that sector before and having a really kind of you know rigorous data set that you've collected on what worked and what didn't and why you know founder market fit you can mold it into meaning any number of of different things but for me certainly a kind of idea stage, pre-seed stage, it's one of those things where, you know, most of the time you're investing on the basis of the founder because the idea will migrate a little bit or pivot a little bit over the course of the business. And so if you can't, you know, you can't see a product yet or you can't see any initial traction, the thing that you're kind of betting on is, okay, does this person seem smart? Does it seem like they're going to have something, some unfair advantage here that I can't see? Because sometimes in the... Thinking about it now, the vast majority of the startups that I talk to and, and definitely ones I mentor have, have got some kind of founder market fit. I'm not saying that is always the case, but looking back, there's a, a high percentage. I wonder if there's different levels of founder market fit. Uh, what I'm getting at there is that I find that if I talk to someone who's got some experience in that market and they think there's a gap and they're open to discuss it and they're really intrigued and passionate about starting a business, they seem a bit more flexible in how they leverage and, and take their experience going forward. Sometimes when you get found a market fit where someone's got 
all the experience you would think on paper needed and and has got reached senior levels in the the category or the market they're now building a service or product within i sometimes find that they're not so flexible and almost feel that their experience their kind of legacy ensures or, or guarantees that they are good bet and they're going to be really successful so the flexibility mentally to take on advice from someone who hasn't got that experience or just literally to flex or be agile in their thought process isn't always there have you found that it's almost like you can't get too much of a founder market fit where you get a little bit you have blind spots that you don't even know you've got because you think you've got everything covered yeah you've got to be very careful right you've got to you don't want people who are very dogmatic in the way that they think about the product they're building or the you know the market that they're going after that they won't take advice or that they won't be willing to change or that they won't be willing to pivot or, or kind of bend a little bit based on, on feedback that they're getting or or based on, you know, traction or engagement or, or lack thereof. So it's a bit of a balancing act. And I think, yes, for investors, sometimes it can also be slightly intimidating to have someone who's like a total expert in their markets, because then you get to that kind of classic question of like, okay, outside of cash, what do I as an investor offer here? And, you know, most investors that I know want to kind of be able to add some sort of value. And, and if that value is just kind of nodding politely while some expert kind of goes, oh, yeah, this is why we have to do this, this and this, then it's it's challenging sometimes. So it is a bit of a, it is a bit of a balancing act. I think for me, it has been a useful proxy to use to kind of gauge how passionate or how engaged someone is about a, a market that they're going into, how wide are their eyes to what life is is really like you know and you see that a lot like people building companies in the music tech space because they think this is easier than getting a recording contract and it's like oh, actually music tech is really hard and you know there's not a lot of companies that have that have done tremendously well out of it and if you think that this is going to get you an invite to the grammys then you know dream on there's probably easier things to do to get that it's a useful kind of heuristic for investors to be able to to think about but for anyone out there who's building a healthcare company and who isn't a doctor, that doesn't mean that you can't do it. It does mean that, you know, you do need to prove why you're building this idea. Like, what's your, what's the obsession that's led you to this point? And I think that's how I kind of think about founder market fit being useful. Absolutely. Well, Eamon, the 30 minutes have disappeared. That's it for this week's episode. Hopefully the words earn out, clause, elevator pitch and founder market fit are now more understood. Please let Eamon and I know if you have any thoughts on our interpretation of these words. And as per usual, our email details can be found in the show notes. Cheers, Eamon. Have a good week. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the series and please rate us and leave a review on your chosen podcast platform. And as mentioned at the start, if you want to explore further 200 plus startup words and phrases, details of where you can buy the startup lexicon book can be found in the notes this episode. Thanks again and have a great day.